0: and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, July 22nd at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And we are pleased to welcome back to our virtual table Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Hi. Good morning. Lots of news this week, so let us get to it. We spent a lot of time last week on the health issues that might end up in the budget reconciliation bills that the House and Senate are starting to work on, so we won't belabor it again. But Alice, what's the latest on the progress on these bills?
1: So I think a lot of things are very much still up in the air. There was a failed test vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package this week. And that doesn't mean it's dead forever. They're going to keep negotiating and try again. And that package of things like roads, bridges, water, broadband, that is supposed to be its own uh, discrete bill, and then the Democrats are gonna try to pass everything else that they wanna pass, including all the health stuff via reconciliation, which is gonna be a massive 3.5 trillion bill. Now, if the bipartisan bill goes down forever, then they're gonna have to make the reconciliation bill even more massive to include everything. And there is some fear that I've been hearing on Capitol Hill that that will mean certain things, including some of the very expensive health provisions, get scaled back somewhat. Maybe they approve these new programs, but for fewer years into the future, hoping they can, you know, extend them later to sort of get the numbers right. Again, a lot of moving parts, a lot of uncertainty right now. I always bet on things not passing and working out. So that's my assumption at this point. But who really knows?
0: Yeah, I know. It's usually a safe bet to to bet on things not happening, although occasionally you can be surprised. We also talked last week about how if Democrats are going to find a way to pay for all of these new benefits, they're going to have to do something about prescription drug prices. We've mostly been talking about letting Medicare negotiate prices, something that is currently prohibited by law. But there's another potential saver out there that's attracting attention, the rebate
2: rule. Tammy, Tell us what that is and why it's such a popular target right now. Well, it's a lot less controversial than allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. So what the problem is, especially in the infrastructure deal, was the original deal had talked about boosting IRS enforcement, which would have brought in anywhere from, you know, 60 or a hundred billion dollars. But now the Republicans have blocked that. So the negotiators need something new. And one thing that's far less controversial than negotiating drug prices is this rebate rule, which was actually pretty controversial in the health industry, at the time, but it's something that the Trump administration issued in late 2020. And basically, it would effectively ban drug makers from providing rebates to pharmacy benefit managers and to insurers. And instead, the drug companies would be encouraged to pass the discounts along directly to patients at the pharmacy counter. And, you know, this has been an issue that has, you know, many arguments, many sides in the industry. But uh, initially, it was dropped because the Trump administration had suggested it in 2019, but then dropped it because it was going to raise premiums for all Medicare enrollees. And then they brought it back in late 2020 because Trump issued an executive order on it in July in hopes of convincing the public to vote for him. But anyway. Because it's a lot of money. It is. So so basically, it's probably north of $170 billion in Medicare spending. One reason why it was dropped was because it was going to increase the cost of Medicare. So if you repeal the rule or push it back, then you miraculously save money. Now, the rule was supposed to go into effect in 2022, but, uh, you know, the industry sued. So now it's going to go into, the Biden administration pushed it back to 2023. So it's possible that they delay it for a year, which will save money for one plan, and then they may repeal it, which will save money for potentially the, the spending plan that'll go through reconciliation. So we'll see. But basically this is, I don't think too many people would be crying if, This rule disappeared.
0: This is this is one of those weird ways that Congress can technically save money by
2: not doing something. Right. And not Um. letting something go ever go into effect because it actually doesn't at the moment exist except in a rule. There's
1: going to be a lot of uh, funny math in the month. Yes, ahead. <laughs> for
2: sure. I
0: would say It's kind of the opposite of the dock fee fix that we had going on for so many years, where blocking something from not taking effect actually cost money. So it's just sort of one of the weird things about federal budgeting. And one of the reasons I mean, it's just it's a great example of the things that there are so many things in play here, so many puzzle pieces that have to come together uh, for this to happen. And I think one of the reasons that there was this test vote is that Majority Leader Schumer was trying to push things along. He was trying to, you know, make the bipartisan group finish. I think they're sort of learning a lesson from the the summer of 2009 when they were working on the health bill. And there was this, you know, there was a Democratic and Republican group that uh, had us all standing in the halls for hours and days and weeks on end negotiating. And in the end, the Democrats lost a lot of time working on the Affordable Care Act because they were waiting to see if, there was going to be a bipartisan bill. And I think Schumer is probably, you know, having palpitations about that. And so he was trying to say, if you guys are going to do this bipartisan bill, you better do it now. Um, But there, I mean, there is some muttering about delaying or canceling the August recess, which they've done maybe twice ever. I mean, Alice, do you think that might actually happen if it looks like they're making progress? At this
1: point, we just don't know. I think Things could become a little more clear next week, but I mean, this could drag into August and beyond.
0: Oh yeah, I expect it will. This is this will keep us busy all fall. Well, let's talk about COVID. Uh, The Delta variant is here, and cases are up in every single state. We also learned this week that COVID was in large part responsible for a decline in life expectancy in 2020 of more than a year and a half. That is the largest single year decline since World War II. Think about that for a minute. Now, the vast majority of cases. And an even bigger majority of people who are getting very sick are those who are not vaccinated. And there's still a pretty big partisan divide, according to polls, with Republicans and Trump supporters much less likely to be vaccinated than Democrats. For the first time this week, though, it seems like more Republicans are coming forward to publicly urge their brethren to get the shot, particularly at Fox News, where vaccine resistant messages have been frequent. Are we seeing some sort of turning point? I did sort of notice that the uh,
3: Fox News commentary from, from Hannity happened after the stock market swayed. So I don't know how much of the economic reality of the Delta variant is starting to hit home. I think you still see a far a large number of Republicans who are really not saying anything. They're sort of playing it safe by, by walking that road. I don't know, do you, does anyone on, the, on here happen to know what happened to the Biden invitation to Trump to come to the White House on this? At a recent press
1: briefing, Jensen, Saki was asked about overtures to Trump to promote the vaccine. And basically, she said he doesn't need an invitation to promote the vaccine. (laughs) So that seemed kind of their attitude.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but to me, what is really striking, I don't know about you, Julie, but just how fast the momentum was for vaccination and how much it's really just stopped. It's been striking. I talked to someone from the previous Trump administration who was involved in Operation Warp Feed, and they said, frankly, that they're quite surprised they didn't expect it to stall at this place either.
0: I've been sort of taken by the Delta variant seems to have frightened people, urged them, done something. I mean, I do feel like, yeah, everything was sort of going along and Republicans were still sort of doing their, you know, it's all, it's not that bad. And we need to reopen the economy and get things going. And now, suddenly, with cases climbing, not just, you know, we talked about cases in Missouri and in Florida and Mississippi. I mean, there's a bunch of states where things have gotten really bad, but now it looks like it's spreading everywhere. And there seems to be, I won't use the word panic, but at least an increased urgency. And of course, we're seeing breakthrough cases on Capitol Hill and in the White House. There are still people like uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's been downplaying the pandemic uh, since it began. He's vowed to appeal a ruling upholding the CDC's restrictive rules for cruise ships because the cruise industry is such a huge boost to Florida tourism. On the other hand, DeSantis, who is selling anti-Tony Fauci swag as a political fundraiser, is suddenly all about getting people vaccinated. Are Republicans wondering how they're going to be remembered when this is all done? Alice, there's this sort of weird, you know, on the one hand, they're saying get vaccinated. On the other hand, they're not allowing localities in their states to do anything that would prevent the spread in any other way.
1: Yeah, so my my colleague and I have a piece today about the the trend of uh, lots of states over the past few months have passed laws banning their own local officials, you know, counties and, and cities or local health departments from... Taking actions against COVID, um, banning them from enacting mass mandates, banning them from enacting like capacity restrictions at businesses or, or places, limits on large gatherings, basically all of those sort of basic public health tools that they have for controlling an infectious disease. And some of them are just COVID specific, but some of them are banning public health authority indefinitely. So this could impact future viral outbreaks, but you know, also really basic things like an outbreak of salmon. In restaurants, or something like that, and there have been rollbacks to efforts to promote like regular childhood vaccinations, and so you've seen a real curtailing of public health powers right at the moment when the virus is resurging and places might need these tools the most.
3: And Alice, I do think that's why we're seeing so much pressure right now on the CDC's decision over the mask guidance. There's some sense that the Biden administration needs to do more to put some tools in place for public health in um, some of these states. So it's it's a very interesting development
2: and there's also a push to get the FDA to actually lift the emergency and you know give full approval for these vaccines because and I know personally at least two people who are not one is not vaccinating herself or her family even though she's actually a, a public school teacher and the second person is not vaccinating her daughter because it's still under, you know, emergency authorization. And they say, they say that when it, you know, receives full approval, then it's safe enough to actually get. Right. Of course, that puts the FDA in sort of this double bind, because if they
3: do approve it, people will say, oh, they didn't go through the typical long process that they always do. Some of these things I think are all around the edges. I just don't know how much any of this will really move the needle on vaccinations until we see a real uptick in cases and deaths.
1: Given the rise in hospitalizations in a lot of places, I I fear that's not far off. I mean, we're already seeing a lot of hospitals filling up, ICUs filling up, in states with low vaccination rates and you know uh, some of the local officials and uh, lawmakers I talked to for my story were saying you know I I hope it doesn't have to get as bad as the worst months of last year before we you know reconsider some of these bans on mask mandates bans on other precautions
3: the other thing too I think that people lose sight of is that the breakthrough infections that we're seeing or we're hearing about whether it be the Olympic athletes or the folks on the hill Some of this was always to be quite expected with the vaccine. It really has to do with, you know, your serious illness, your hospitalizations, that's what I think the metrics are we need to be looking at. And so far in the U.S., among the vaccinated, that's still been something that we're not seeing an increase in. I'm still puzzled somewhat by the Israeli data, but so far the vaccine itself seems to be holding up really quite well against Delta.
0: Yeah, I think think in Israel, I mean, there was data that most of the people who were in the hospital have been vaccinated because most of the people have been vaccinated.
3: Exactly. That's the other thing. So I think that there's a lot of education that still needs to be done for the public on this, because I think they are seeing breakthrough and they're, they're really saying this means it's not working, when in fact that's not the case. It is working.
2: And a lot of the people who are unfortunately getting this are young and think, you know, it's the young invincibles, who historically, you know, historically being the past year, uh, have not been getting that sick. So they're like, eh, you know, we're not really getting, you know, young people aren't really getting it. And if we get it, we're not really that sick. So why should we get vaccinated? But now we're seeing, obviously, that a lot of the hospitalizations and the more serious cases are among the young because a lot of them aren't vaccinated. And, you know, there was that really sad story out of Alabama that's been circulating that of the nurse who the young patient just before the nurse is intubating, them says, you know, give me the vaccine. And she's like, I'm sorry, it's too late. And what the nurse said, you know, after the patient died was that, you know, maybe this one tragic case may actually save more people, you know, at least the person's family and friends who may not be vaccinated because they see that, A, it's not a hoax, it's not the flu, you know, and it it really has serious ramifications.
3: Which is why I think fall in school is going to be really
0: contentious, Oh, I'm so glad you said that, because that's my next question. (laughs) Um, This week, a court upheld the right of Indiana University, a public institution, to require students and faculty to be vaccinated in order to be on campus in the fall. Is this going to sort of uh, give permission to more public institutions to do this? Or are they going to, as I guess uh, Tammy or Stephanie mentioned, wait until the FDA approves, you know, officially approves these vaccines? Well, it depends on eight states
3: so far have passed, as we talked about, um, restrictions on the ability to. To bring masks back, and and some of that um, is is hitting square with school reopenings in the fall, and you've got parents who are really divided on this issue, and a lot of concern at the same time over this issue. So uh, that's where I think we're going to see a lot a lot of pushback and debates about how we make this the most safe for students going back.
2: Yeah, it'll be very interesting because in New York, De Blasio is you know resisting a mask mandate in schools, but is also not. Having a remote option. Right. A number of. That's really common.
0: And you can't have a vaccine mandate for kids under 12 because there's no vaccine for kids under 12. Right. So let's
2: see what happens in New York City, which is, you know, kind of, from what I've heard, is a fairly large school system. So (laughs) it'll be a good test. All right. Well, while we've been concentrating on the pandemic with good reason, the opioid epidemic
0: is continuing to rage. Last week, we learned that it wasn't just COVID that made 2020 deadly. According to the CDC, there were nearly 100,000 overdose deaths. That's the highest number on record. On the other hand, this week, a group of state attorneys general announced they'd reached a settlement with four of the companies considered most responsible for flooding the U.S. market with opioids, uh, distributors Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health and McKesson, and drug maker Johnson & Johnson. The companies have agreed to pay a combined $26 billion to states and localities. This is the biggest settlement of its type since the tobacco settlement back in the late 1990s. Now, that settlement was supposed to be spent on anti-tobacco activities, but in fact, most of it went to completely unrelated state spending, a lot of roads, in fact. Um, is there any reason to think that won't happen to this money too? Or might we actually see some efforts to do something about opioids?
3: Well, as I understand it, the agreement that was announced by the bipartisan group of the attorneys general stipulates that the money does go back into the communities for opioid addiction services. I haven't covered this in depth, so others can feel free to jump in, but that was my understanding.
0: Yeah, but that's what the tobacco money
3: was supposed to do, too. Yes, yes, that that is a good point. But, you know, it it all feels very familiar as I read it. Although keep in mind that states and localities right now are desperate for funding to address this issue. This is something that's that's hitting them in terms of where they really want resources and more resources. So that, I think, could potentially play a significant role. I,
0: I also wonder, you know, as Alice said, there's so many states now that are cutting back on the ability of, their, you know, public health officials to do things if that's going to impact efforts against opioids. I mean, even by accident, you know, public health, which has always been a very trusted profession is now suddenly very politicized.
1: I also am waiting for the fight about Medicaid expansion in the remaining holdout states to intersect more with the opioids conversation because it's played a big role in in the states that have expanded in helping get care to low-income people who need it. And so I'm wondering if that will be an additional pressure on the conversation either about pushing individual states to expand or just going around them and doing some sort of federal program as, as they're discussing on Capitol
0: Hill right now. So it seems we can't go a week without talking about hospital price transparency, but there is news this week. The Biden administration has taken note of the raft of stories about how hospitals aren't following the Trump era rules requiring them to make their prices public. Now they are proposing to increase the fines for flouting those rules. Assuming these proposed rules are put into effect, is it going to make a difference or would hospitals rather just pay the government than make their prices public? Has any hospital been fined at this point?
3: I mean, I know they've got letters have gone out, but part of it, has right? I don't
0: believe anybody's actually been fined, but yes, they've been threatened. It has to be, but the fines are so small; they're like three hundred dollars a day. Right? They might have to go the public shaming route, yeah, that they used to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, two million dollars is not chump change, and right, and that's what the that's what the new fines and and this isn't going away. So it's possible, and you know, the insurers are coming in next year. So. The Biden administration, especially since he even mentioned this in an executive order, you know, which is what uh, the fines, I guess, stem from or the increase in the fines stem from. But, you know, the hospitals can choose to continue to ignore this, but it doesn't sound like it's something that's going to go away from the administration. Uh, But the question is, is it going to make a difference? I mean, are people going to be shopping? And, you know, The Wall Street Journal has done some fantastic stories on this. And others have that point out a lot of the differences, you know, in in pricing, but ultimately, will, will we see a lot of changes and particularly will the consumers start actually shopping on price, which is sort of what the Trump administration and what we heard Seema Verma endlessly say, like airline prices. But I don't know if this is going to become an equivalent of Expedia to get their MRIs or to you know do their shoulder surgeries or whatever.
3: Yeah, I think I think it's really when the third parties come in when we start seeing some of that because right now even if you look at the data that is been posted, it doesn't make sense to the average consumer. I mean, we're still a ways but, away from whether the, knowing whether this is going to make much impact.
2: Right, but my company had one of these third party that would allow us to right. to shop, and first of all, I knew about it and I never used it. No, and no. you know, ninety five percent of my colleagues had never heard about it when I talked to them. So, you know, even when this data was out there in some capacity, people didn't use it. So who knows? I mean, that's what the experts say.
0: I would say, as we know, Expedia has its own problems because, and I'm not blaming Expedia here, I'm blaming the airline industry, which has figured out ways to, you know, yes, you get a price, air quotes, but it's not really the price, um, because there's all these add-on fees. So the requirement that they make their prices public has not, in many cases, has not helped all that much. And I wonder if, you know, healthcare isn't going to figure out the same way to do it, where you're going to get prices, but you're not really going to know how much you're going to be expected to spend.
2: Right. That's what the surprise billing rule will be. I was just thinking, (laughs) yeah, Tammy, I was just, my
0: brain went to the same thing. Yep. That's
3: where I think (laughs) we may see more,
0: more impact. And, that was my next question, which is they're <laughs> writing the regs on the surprise billing rule. I guess the way they write
2: them, is going to be really important as to whether all of this new information is actually going to be of some use. I mean, what will be interesting to see is, you know, whether consumers shop or not, it'll be interesting to see what insurers do, because now all of a sudden they're seeing what their competitors are paying or and, you know, which may be a lot less than what they've been asked to pay. So I think there we may see some changes and that may ultimately help consumers, but we'll see. And I mean, yeah, the surprise billing, that does have a a chance of actually having much more of an impact on, on certain consumers. But it was interesting because one of the experts I was speaking to said, while you still have high deductibles, People are going to consider those surprise bills, right? When they get, then they have to go to the doctor or do something in the beginning of the year, and all of a sudden they get a two thousand dollar bill or fifteen hundred dollar bill, and they're like, "Wait, it's a surprise bill." It's like, "No, it's actually your deductible."
0: Although it, a surprise bill can be your deductible. I mean, if it's if it's more than you were expecting, then it's a surprise bill, right? But they're
2: allowed to bill it, right? Right, but that's the problem: is is that when we're when we're all writing, saying surprise billing is over, etc. Consumers don't necessarily always understand what a surprise bill is, and again, if they get. Get a bill for their deductible, they may say, wait, this isn't allowed anymore. And it's like, well, actually it is. <laughs>
0: So Well, so lest you think this is just another nerd topic, our podcast colleagues, Margo Sanger-Katz and Sarah Cliff at the New York Times, this week have a story about a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association that found one in five Americans not only has a medical debt, but has a medical debt in collection, and that the dollar amount of medical debt has nearly doubled since 2016, from 81 billion to 140 billion. This is kind of crazy. How long can we continue to let hospitals bankrupt patients even those with insurance, or at very least ruin their credit ratings. Um, I mean, this is not necessarily something, as Tammy just said, that the surprise bill, you know, law is going to fix. I mean, a lot of this are people with five and $6,000 deductibles who simply can't pay them. That's what struck me as we were talking about all these all these various elements is how far removed
3: this is from the discussions we were having a while ago about Medicare for all and public option. I mean, these are all important issues, but it's still kind of nibbling around the edges of the broader problem that the healthcare system is grappling with in terms of the rising out of pocket costs and the uncertainty about costs and, and the medical debt. It just struck me as how the things that we're focusing on, whether it's still important, the conversation has shifted so dramatically.
0: Yeah, and I, I, it, it'll be interesting to see sort of what gets honed in on when, when we get to actual debate on the health pieces of this reconciliation right. bill. There was a great um, uh,
2: tweet out there. That, I don't know if I, it was in Axios or one of the other newsletters. Someone said that Jeff Bezos was able to go into space before his company was able to Oh, I saw that! You know, that. harness, yes. harness uh, health care that, you know, he and J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway a couple of years ago tried to, like, create a venture to rein in health care costs and that failed. But, you know, yet he was able to go into space this week, so, or yeah. go into
0: space. Space is easier than healthcare. Rocket science is easier <laughs> exactly. than healthcare. I think that's the t-shirt. And is healthcare one or two words? Healthcare yes. harder than rocket science. That's
2: a big issue. That's a I really know. big issue.
0: <laughs> it's
2: two words. At right.
3: uh, we just moved it <laughs> well, to one word. I'm still fighting that battle.
0: <laughs> oh,
2: boy. I know.
0: All right. Well, Alice, I'm glad you're here because there's lots of news on the reproductive health front. I want to start with the Hyde Amendment, uh, which is the ban on most abortions that's been carried in the annual spending bill for the Department of Health and Services in one form or another since 1976, which is even before I started covering it. Um, You're covering it this year. What's the status of Hyde right now?
1: So the uh, House Appropriations Committee did manage to pass the bill out of committee getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. Only one Democrat, I believe, joined Republicans in trying to stop it. So that has passed out of committee. It is not yet known whether or not it's going to come to the floor as part of a minibus omnibus or what's going to happen there.
0: But in other words, package with other spending bills.
1: Exactly. And several other spending bills have provisions lifting previous restrictions on abortion funding in different ways. There's many sprinkled throughout all these appropriations bills. They repealed the ban on abortions for people in federal prison. They, They got rid of the ban on federal employee insurance covering abortion. Um, there's a specific ban just for the District of Columbia being able to use its its own money um, to help pay for abortions through Medicaid. So there there's a lot in there, and they did move out of committee, and so now we don't know what's going to happen next. And even if it passes the House, it is very uncertain that it could pass the Senate. There are several Democrats over in the Senate who do oppose these changes, they want to keep these uh, restrictions on federal funding for abortion in place. And so the repeal effort has, this is farther than it's gotten in a long, long time, but it's not over the finish line or even close.
0: So back in 1993, when Bill Clinton became president, it looked like they were going to get rid of Hyde. I actually went and looked this up yesterday. And in fact, it did not come out of committee with it gone, but it was gone on the floor. And it was Henry Hyde himself who figured out this parliamentary entry sleight of hand to get it back in. But I think that even though the House, you know, is full of more lawmakers who would like to see Hyde go away, it's also still full of, of, you know, Democrats. There there are a lot of people out there for whom, yes, abortion should be a choice, but no, the government shouldn't pay for it. And that's always been sort of the issue with Hyde. And it's, it's a really high hurdle for abortion rights. And, you know, I think the last last couple of years and during the Obama administration. They didn't even try because it's such an enormous fight. There seems to be very little chance they can win, right?
1: This is why polling on this is so tricky and why both sides say that they have the public on their side. Because if you frame the question as, do you think that taxpayers should pay for abortions, you know, most people say no. But if you say, oh, do you think people should be denied an abortion just because they're poor and on Medicaid? People are like, oh, no, that's that's crazy. So it's really a question of framing And the left has really leaned into the argument that this is, you know, a racial justice issue, an economic justice issue, that we're already at a place where if you are wealthy, you can get an abortion, and if you are poor, you cannot. And this would level that playing field a little more and make it a true choice for everyone. Whereas, um, like you said, a lot of people, including a lot of Democrats, are uncomfortable with the idea of federal funding going towards this.
0: So meanwhile, on the state level, I mean, while we're waiting for the Supreme Court to take up and consider this Mississippi law, um, we had a court this week strike down in Arkansas near total ban on abortion. But we're also about to see this Texas law go into effect? Remind us how that's different from all these other abortion bans.
1: So the Texas law, it was crafted to try to survive a judicial challenge or to not even be able to be challenged in court because the state itself is not enforcing the ban. It is relying on private citizens to sort of tattle on each other and sue each other over violating the abortion ban. You could sue someone for helping someone else get an abortion. You could sue the medical provider who provides the abortion and there is a cash incentive to do so. You can get a $10,000 reward for bringing A lawsuit uh, as a private citizen around this. And so this is raising a lot of privacy, constitutional flags. Obviously, it it is being challenged. We will see what happens there. But it's, as always, Texas is sort of the vanguard and trying new and creative ways uh, to ban abortion. So we'll see what happens with this particular method.
0: Yes, I think this will also be a a subtext as we go into the legislating in the fall. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it's time for our extra credit segment where we recommend a story we read we think you should read too don't worry if you miss it we will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org Tammy why don't you go first this week
2: okay my story is from the Los Angeles Times by Emily Alpert Reyes and it's a very disturbing story about same hospitals, but worse outcomes for black patients than white ones. And, you know, we know that there's been, long been a disparity in healthcare outcomes in hospitals. We, you know, a lot of the talk has been about maternal mortality now, and the fact that black mothers and mothers-to-be have much higher mortality rates than whites. But what this report, this was a, an analysis from the Urban Institute, What it found was that black patients are significantly more likely to suffer dangerous bleeding infections and other serious problems related to surgical procedures than white patients when they're both treated at the same hospital. So, you know, this sort of torpedoes the argument that black patients are less likely to be admitted or couldn't afford higher quality hospitals. But this shows that actually it's an issue even at the same hospital. So that is very troubling. It is indeed. Stephanie. My story was in the Washington Post. It's called Biden administration
3: workers grapple with health threats posed by climate change and heat by Eli Rosenberg and Abba Batari. And what this is, it's really fascinating because it's looking at the heat waves that we've been having on the West Coast and the fact that the Biden administration's um, OSHA now wants to put some sort of heat illness rule as a priority to get passed. And what is potentially surprising to people is that there is not any rule that governs heat related workplace safety. and, you know, you already had two workers die in the recent West Coast heat outbreak, including a farm worker. So it's, it's sort of an offshoot of what's happening with the climate right now. It's, it's very, very concerning. But how do we protect workers uh, in this increasingly dangerous environment for our climate that we see? Alice.
1: I picked a piece from the 19th by Orion Rumler about another Arkansas law that got blocked in court this week. Uh, this one was banning uh, gender-affirming care for trans people, especially minors. And so this was the sort of the first of its kind, um, but a lot of other states are interested in passing similar laws right now. It's important that it was blocked in court, but this piece also points out that a bunch Of Republican Attorneys General wrote a brief for the federal court supporting the law even though similar laws don't yet exist in their states and they were sort of pointing out how unusual this is because usually state attorneys general weigh in on a case concerning another state's law if they already have one like it saying hey we have an interest in this because we have a similar law over here and we really think it should stand up in court so we really want to know what you think but when that law doesn't even exist yet and they're just saying we who don't write the laws would love to see a law like this, that that gets into some dicey territory. So I think it's a sign that... There will continue to be a push in a lot of states to enact these kind of bans on trans care. And so really something to watch.
0: Wow. (laughs) Uh, Well, my story is from my former chemical mate at NPR, Jeff Brumfield. It's called The Life Cycle of a COVID-19 Lie. And rather than just complain about myths and misinformation, Jeff has done a case study here of one particular untruth about the vaccine, that it can make women infertile, which it doesn't. Uh, He looks at how it began, how it spread, and how it's been replaced by other lies. It's a fascinating look at a really big problem and I do recommend it highly. So that is our show for the week as always. If you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks as always to our ace producer, Francis Yang, who still manages to make us all sound good. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what all one word at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Rovner. Alice. At Alice Olstein. Tammy. At Luby L-U-H-B-Y. Stephanie. At Steph Armor One. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.